Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would work in our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. A name that you might know, might not. I mentioned it in Sunday school a number of weeks ago. William Perkins. William Perkins, a Puritan theologian, I think from Cambridge, in roughly the 16th century, one of those men who is... Uh, faithful in his ministry, responsible for kind of organizing the ways that we read the Bible. But when he came to describe kind of what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to read the Bible and to think about the Bible and to think about God, uh, his famous sentence is this, theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Theology, the study of God, 
is the science, and by that he didn't mean kind of our today postmodern scientific definition. What he meant is studying a truth outside of your own head. Right? It's not just what you think about the world to make yourself feel better. It's, it's studying a reality that is outside of you, studying God's word. So the study of God is studying truth, the truth specifically of living blessedly forever. And I love Perkins' thought on what Christianity is. When done according to the scriptures and the knowledge of Christ and filled by the Spirit, you have this blessed living now, but into forever. It's been said in other places that really the role of a pastor is just preparing people to die well. It's maybe a bit grim, but not entirely wrong. Preparing people to face the death that will inevitably get them. One of those things that we do know is a reality. It's intriguing to me. This is funny that so many people, we all know that death will eventually get us. No one except for Jesus has ultimately outrun it forever. It it will get us, and yet most people live their day-to-day life in such a way pretending that they're never going to die. The problem is you will. You might not like that fact. You may reject that fact. Right? I reject it. It's not true. Well, you're going to die anyways, whether or not you like it. It is the reality of the world. And in fact, actually, Matthew chapter 25 is Jesus instructing his disciples on that uh, art of living blessedly forever. He's teaching them to die well. At this point in his ministry, he is quickly approaching the point where he knows that he's going to die. Uh, He's approaching uh, those final days, those days where he would um, intentionally make sure that he made it to the cross. He's mighty God, very clever man as well. But knowing that he's going to die, he's instructing them uh, to get them ready, them ready for him to die and to get them ready for them to die. And chapter 25 is largely in the kind of preparatory content and saying, get ready for the end. You never know when your end is going to be. In fact, actually, here it's kind of phrased within this concept of the last day, uh, the end of time when Jesus comes back, the second coming. We know that in his first one, he he steps inside, second person of the Trinity, steps inside time and space uh, by stepping into the womb of a young Jewish woman, Mary. She delivers him in the way that's normal, has a baby, and he is still God, fully man, inside the created order, wearing flesh, humanity, 100% man. The way the confession calls that is that that's his ministry of humility, his ministry of humiliation. He, he ministers to humanity in such a low and um, really unbelievably low and miserable state to leave the glory of heaven, the glory of the triune um, Godhead and to step inside flesh, not just inside any human, but you know, a poor Jewish carpenter's kid in the middle of nowhere, insignificant to be murdered by his own people. 
He doesn't stay dead. Death isn't strong enough to keep him. He raises himself from the dead. He uh, then spends a, a you know, handful of days with his disciples and then ascends into glory and kind of disappears off the scene um, physically for a while, body residing in heaven next to the Father. But on the last day, he comes back. And this time, rather than showing up in humility, stepping inside the womb of a young Jewish mother, he shows up in glory with all of the angels around him, these creatures of fire and eyes, And he descends from heaven, and in doing so, raises the dead to life. His people meet him in the air, and everyone goes to earth for judgment day. Everyone's there. All men and women, boys and girls that have ever lived, everyone is there. And certainly the way the major and minor prophets speak of this day of the Lord is that it's not probably most likely just one simple 24-hour period. It's, it's an event. It's the cataclysm. It's really, we could say of it, it's, it's the time when time as we know it ends. It's the ending of this created order the way that we know it. I mean, to put it kind of in perspective, I did some of the math this morning just to amuse myself. If, as part of Judgment Day, every human alive on the planet right now got 30 seconds before the Trinity, before the triune God, 30 seconds to be judged by Jesus, Judgment Day would only last 7,500 years if everybody got 30 seconds in front of the Lord. That's just the people alive now. We're, We're talking the greatest event in created history. It's the event that defines all other events. It's the event that everything has been in some fashion preparation for. It's the event that the entire created order has been shaped for. And if we go back to even the flood was the promise that's given to Noah. The Lord will never destroy the world by water ever again with the implicit hint that it's coming but it's in fire the next time in the last day. Judgment Day. This is the point that Jesus, Jesus describes in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, when the Son of Man, that's his title for himself, when he returns in his glory and all of his angels with him. Now, this is an intriguing statement because basically every time we see an angel show up, a singular angel show up anywhere in the Bible, the immediate response that has to be given is don't be afraid because these are the most terrifying things inside the created order. Here he doesn't show up with one of them. He shows up with all of them. Nothing's held back. The, The idea that is given here is the glory of heaven is descending into the created order. The glory that has been reserved for the very throne room itself is now, it's presenting inside the created order. And remember the other times we've seen similar kind of ideas happen. And we see it in Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah. Isaiah freaks out and the the very kind of doorposts are about to collapse on top of him and he has a a bit of an emotional traumatic experience. Ezekiel, when he sees the glory of the Lord in such a fashion, it's so traumatizing to him, he loses the ability to speak and think and just sits as a lump, as a puddle of human until the Holy Spirit actually has to raise him up to get him moving. He, He can't function. The glory of the Lord has descended, all of his angels with him, and then Jesus sits on the throne of judgment. 
the God-man, fully God, fully man, sits in judgment of all people. 32 before him will be gathered all the nations, all the, all the nations. Everyone's involved in this. There's no one that gets a pass. There's, you know, no uh, uh, skipping this one. There's no, you know, get out of jail free cards. There's no, I don't think I want to be a part of this. All people are brought before the judgment throne. And Jesus begins the process of judgment. And the first kind of idea that I want you to see as we look at this text is that at the end of the day, at the end of time, at the end of everything, there are only two categories of people. That's what the division begins with here. He begins separating the same way a shepherd would. He sends the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. He begins the division of all of humanity. Men, women, boys, and girls. Those that perished in the womb. Those that perished in old age. Those that had actually not even yet perished when Jesus returns. All people are divided. And the interesting thing is, uh, kind of this division is that uh, as infinitely wise as God is, and remember, there's no lack of knowledge on God's part. It's not like he doesn't know. He knows every single thing about every single person. His division is simply into two. His children and his enemies. That's it. That's the entirety of the division of all, you know, the billions of people. Maybe if, maybe if we're still the early church and Jesus doesn't come back for another 100,000 years, we might get into the trillions of people. I don't, I don't know. That's not up for me to know or to decide. But all the, the uncountable numbers of humanity are get divided into those two categories. Now, this is an interesting thing because we live in a time, weirdly enough, in some fashion, it almost feels like we're going backwards in time. We love dividing people into groups right now. In fact, that's the heart of what critical theory, and I don't mean critical race theory, I mean critical theory as a whole is, is the idea of we love to divide people into groups. It helps us think. We love to divide into the haves and the have-nots. We love to divide into socioeconomic groups. We love to divide into political parties. We love to divide into the Joe Rogan versus Neil Young and Joni Mitchell versus those that have no idea what that illustration actually even is. You can tell which news sources you watch. We love to divide into the Fox News and the MSNBC and the agnostics. We've spent time in our nation dividing based on skin color. We love to divide. And I think part of that is because in the heart of every person is this desire that we want to feel special. (laughs) And so our favorite divisions are the ones that put us in the good team and put everybody else in the bad team. Right? There's a lot of us in this room that one of our favorite divisions is left-handed versus right-handed because it marks us in the elite and the rest of you, well, as the masses. (laughs) 
We love division. The problem is, as humans, we love the wrong division. We love to divide on things that don't matter or on things that matter but for the wrong reasons. And it's interesting that when time ends as we know it, when the created order ceases as we know it, the division that matters is not whether you have a a left hand that's useful or is a placeholder. It doesn't matter whether your hair is gray or not. It doesn't matter if your eyes are the same color or not. It matters if you belong to Christ or not. That's it. That is the sum totality of the created order. That's the only division that matters. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Does the Lord love you? Or are you his enemy? And I I, I think, honestly, this is one of those things that intellectually many Christians kind of understand. But it's one of those truths that intellectually we think about for 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and then it makes us uncomfortable and it hurts our hearts. The idea that some of the people that we know and love will be the objects of God's wrath and we just put it away and never think about it ever again. And in doing so, friends, we're like the, the, the silly illustration of an ostrich trying to bury our head in the sand to pretend like this great reality doesn't exist. It's the way the world is. Whether you like it or not has nothing to do with it. Whether it makes you feel good or not has nothing to do with the truthfulness of it. I mean, if we're going to be honest, I I suspect if we were to spend a lengthy period of weeks or months talking about this, we would find that because so many of us don't emotionally ever really process the fact that we're all going to die and people are divided into one of these two camps, it, it has destroyed our urgency for living. Why is it that American Christians are so easily satisfied with cars and houses and children and spouses and jobs? Why is it that the American church can so easily be preoccupied with the things that make me feel good? The things that make me happy or make me feel good about myself? Why is it that the American American Christians are so oftentimes so very poor at evangelism that are so very excellent at producing entitled people preoccupied with what I deserve and what makes me feel good about myself? Why is it that we can produce Christians that are so forgetful of the gospel? I suspect that a substantial part of that is the fact that we've really lost the emotional punch of the fact that every person you drive by on the way home today 
will be either one of God's loved ones or one of his enemies. I remember years ago, one of my friends used to talk about how difficult it was. He loved sports, loved going to sporting events, but how difficult it increasingly got for him to go to sporting events because he would just look at the stadium and just mentally everybody in there was either one of God's loved ones or one of his enemies. And the idea of just the sheer enormity of so many thousands of his enemies, would just, it would just overwhelm him and rob the joy of the basketball game or the football game with the sadness of God's enemies. All people are divided into one of these two camps. That's it. There's, there's no third way. There's no alternative. There's no, well, they tried hard, but still. There's no category for the ignorant. There's no category for those that don't understand. There's no category for, well, they were better than everybody else. Two categories. That's it. God's loved one or God's enemy. You get to see what follows, how uh, intimately the Lord loves His people, how tenderly He thinks of them, how uh, highly He values them. The way the interchange goes, He places the sheep on one side, the goats on the other, and then verse 34, the king says to the sheep on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. Prison, you came to me. And I love the response that the righteous give. They're like, I, 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 don't, I don't really remember doing that. Like, I think I would have remembered if I met you, Jesus. Like physically, it would be a fairly significant thing in my life. Like, you know getting married, birth of a child, the day that Jesus showed up in my front yard and needed something to eat, and I got to get him a meal from whatever we had in the pantry. Like, and I, I love how the Lord's response is so tender. He's like, no, you misunderstand. The relationship between me and my church is so tender, is so close That the proof of your love for God is not that you cared for Christ when he showed up. It's that you cared for his church when she showed up. He cared for all of his people when they showed up. That they showed wonderful, tender watch care over the people of God. I will say, in, in just clarification to help cue your brain in, I think... Uh, the ESV, I think, is the best translation out right now. Uh, it's absolutely marvelous. I, I don't think verse 40 is probably translated very helpfully. Uh, they are attempting to maintain the order of the words from the Geneva translation from about 400 years ago and change. Uh, and I think they perhaps don't make it quite so helpful. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. Uh, we read that most of us in our brain like there's comma, uh, commas around the my brothers, my, the brackets. And, and probably the Greek is probably a little bit better read if you have an NASB or an NIV here, where it says, uh, I say to you, if you did it to any of the least of my brothers, the least of these, these are my brothers. If, if, it's reflected in how you care for the church. Which is why, again, when he's speaking to those that will be destroyed, he says, any of you that did so, you did to the least of these. You can imagine him pointing to the sheep next to him. The Lord is so intimately connected to his people that the the proof of transformation, that the proof of your character being altered, the proof of love of God is reflected in love of his people in ordinary activities. I love it. None of these are like kind of spectacular, groundbreaking moments. You found somebody needed something to drink. Here, let me get you a cup of water, man. It's fine. It's fine. Somebody that needed something to eat. Somebody that was in the hospital and just needed a little bit of TLC. Somebody's having a hard time and, quote, down on their luck. And you're able to take care of them. The reason why this is so important is, I would say, kind of partially for thinking about it from the good perspective, but actually really more important, I think, for when you think about it for the goats. Those that are defined as the enemies of God, uh, verse 41, they get cursed, they receive uh, the wrath of God, and verse 42, they actually object, and I I can, (laughs) good on for you for having actually the backbone to speak back to God on his judgment throne, but okay. And their argument is, verse 44, when did we see you? When did we see you? Because as the story unfolds, we're the bad guys. We're the ones that didn't feed you. We're the ones that didn't give you something to drink. We're the ones that didn't give you clothes to wear. When did we see you? In verse 45, the Lord clearly defines, you didn't have to see me physically. You saw my people, and that was enough. And I think this is so incredibly important because of what it actually defeats. The number one American answer for why I should be in God's side that he loves, why I should be one of the sheep, why I should be one of the good guys that wins in the end is because I'm a better person than everybody else. I mean, have you seen my neighbors? They're terrible. No, I'm, I'm making that up. I'm not really my neighbors. My neighbors are lovely people. Your neighbors, right? Have you seen my coworkers? My coworkers are great. Yours. Have you seen my family? My family is wonderful. You see the point, right? Obviously, the illustration. We, we take this kind of comparative moment where we say, have you seen everybody else? And have you seen how bad they are? The bad stuff they do, the horrible things, the way they hurt each other, the way that they are unjust towards each other, the way that they lie about each other, all the terrible things that they do. And it's interesting, the thing that Jesus highlights here the damnation that follows is not for any of the terrible things that anybody has done. 
It's the absence of good things done to his people. That's actually, now again, that's not the ultimate thing. We're going to get to that in a moment. But that's the proof. That's the example. That's the illustration. You know, want to know what the proof is that you're a go to proof that you are on the wrong side of the natural bent of your heart. That's not caring for God's people. Now, many of us that kind of paying attention here, the natural kind of human moment is to say, well, you know what? If that's all it is, if all I have to do to guarantee that I'm on the good side is just take care of the church, well, I can spend the rest of my life doing that. That's not hard. I can give my money to the church. I can take the pastor out to lunch. I can find out whenever we need a meal train and make sure I'm the first person to sign up giving food to people that are sick or ladies when they have children or things like that. It's not hard. Right? I'll, just, I'll just work harder. I'll just be a better person. I'll just be gooder. I know that's not a word. But you see, again, that, that's actually missing the beginning part of how the story is told. Jesus is actually defining them in the, to the two camps, not by their actions, but by their nature. Sheep go on one side, goats go on the other. It's the nature that's the problem. The activity is just an outpouring of the nature. This is the part that I think a lot of times we've missed. You've read this passage a number of times, many of you I'm sure, before him, verse 32, he gathered all the nations. We got that. He'll separate people, one from another, sheep from goats. Okay, we've got that. He'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I got that. Then, verse 34, the part we stop reading for some reason. The king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, receive the inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You get the blessing that was designed at the point of creation. And it's yours as an inheritance because of who your father is. It's yours not because you're a good person. It's not because you took care of the church better than anyone else. It's because your nature has been transformed because you belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords and Christ Jesus has transformed you by his life, death, and resurrection. You have a different nature. Likewise, the, the goats, they receive the curse of God, the wrath of God, not simply because of their deeds, that is a problem. But it's a problem that can't be resolved by simply being a better person. You can't undo all of the bad by doing more good. It's not a problem that can be simply resolved by a change in giving pattern. Taking care of those less fortunate than you. See, the real emphasis here, again, is on the nature that produces those actions. 
Uh, That's why the question coming back from both parties is so significant. Lord, when did we do these things? We don't know because they're the natural behavior of these animals. It would be like a dog being like, when did I bark at the mailman? It's kind of like what you always do. That's, you're a dog. That's what you do. Right? Be like a cat saying, when was I hateful? That's what cats are. <laughs> right? That's what you do. That's your nature. You're, you're just behaving according to what you are. Hateful creatures. The actions laid out in the text here are a reflection of the characters of the people that God has established. And friends, I would say this with utmost seriousness. I mean, obviously, I try to make a little bit of silliness with the cats and dogs and things like that, but the reality is that every word of this chapter is true. And whether or not you like it, whether or not you want to believe it, whether or not it makes you feel good about yourself, this created order will stop at some point. And everything will come down to not how much money you made, not how good of a mother or a father you were, not whether you were kind to your neighbor, not even how much money you gave to the church or how well you took care of people in need. Everything will come down to your relationship with Christ Jesus. Is God your Father in Christ? Or is God your enemy in yourself? And the great reality is that these two different categories of people, the sheep and the goats as they're illustrated here, have two entirely different ends. The sheep, well, they inherit the kingdom that is prepared for them from the foundation of the world, right? This is God's preparation of blessing for his people before sin even entered in. I love it. I can't wait to see what that is like. I mean, what does an infinitely creative God who has no lack of resources, what does his good gift, his blessing for all eternity look like? I can't wait. But unfortunately, for the other side, those that know not the Lord, those that are the objects of his wrath, well, what happens? Depart from me, you cursed people, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A place of destruction where the devil himself goes as demons, those that have been laboring against the Lord and against his kingdom, death and destruction for all eternity. And again, it's an eternal fire one that burns without going out in such a way that it's not just they have a moment of, well, crud, I made a wrong decision. Right? It's not that moment in a car accident where you go to hit the brakes and you know, oh, well, rats. I hit the brakes, but it's still just not going to matter. I'm going to hit the car in front of me no matter what. It's not that moment, and then it's over. It's God's eternal wrath for the rest of time, which will continue indefinitely. And friends, I would, I would make a couple of important appeals based on this text. One, a room this size with this many bodies, I know that there are those in here that know they're an enemy of God. 
I know that in a room this size with this many bodies, I know there are people in here that know secretly down in their heart, no matter what anybody else thinks, they know they don't love the Lord. They know they don't know the Lord. Living a life of pretend. Maybe perhaps we have someone here that just, it's outright defiance. They just don't love the Lord at all. And friend, I would lovingly say to you, it's the most loving thing I can say to you. You're going to die. Please fix that now. And the path is an easy one. The Lord Jesus himself has said that his burden is easy. His yoke, like a, a, an animal you know, pulling a yoke, it's light. Because he's done all of the hard work and all of the heavy lifting. <laughs> he lived the perfect life, something you can't do. He died an unjust death, something we can't do. We deserve every death we could get. He had enough power that he didn't stay dead, something that we lack the ability to do, and then raised himself into glory, something we don't even know what to do with. Really, at the end of the day, the end of time, it all comes down to what we do with that. Do we hear that true story of who Jesus is and kind of have that moment of the king of Nineveh and say, let us all repent. Maybe God will be merciful. Do we throw ourselves at the feet of the king of kings and lord of lords and say, perhaps God will be merciful. Maybe he will forgive me in Christ. Friends, he will. I acknowledge it's a scary thing. Uh, I, I do remember this much at least, to have to give up control of your life. To have to be willing to kind of give up doing it your way. And to follow God's way. The only thing I can say is that he's trustworthy and true. That's one of my great and favorite things to read in biographies is aging saints, particularly martyrs or whatever, as they're dying to say that, you know, in all of my experience, I've always found him to be true. That's Polycarp's last words. He's never let me down. He's not starting now. Now, if you're a Christian, you know the Lord and your life has been transformed, I might give you a slightly different kind of challenge in thinking through this. It would be two-part. One is that I would encourage you to start thinking and living your life a little bit kind of more in the front of your mind uh, that you're going to die. Again, many of us have lived uh, for a long time thinking we never will. I understand I was a man who lived through my 20s and knew that death would never, ever happen. And then you hit your 40s and things change a little bit, I guess. To, but to live in light of eternity. Because honestly, it's so easy to be captivated with this life. That's only corrected when viewed through the lens of death. And secondly, for those that, again, already kind of profess Christ and know his love, have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, 
uh, I would encourage you to pay attention. The marker that the Lord uses as proof of the Spirit's work is a love for His people and a compassion. And interestingly, we live in a time in which it's very cool to hate the church. It's very trendy. And I don't mean Christ Ridge. Thankfully, it's not trendy to do that. That would be really weird. But I mean the, the, the kind of church as a whole. It's very trendy to view the church as through her failings, through her limitations, through her inabilities, through her poor judgments, through her inconsistencies and hypocrisies, to view the church only through the negatives. And it's intriguing that when the Lord speaks of his people, he speaks of them most beautifully as having cared for him. I might lovingly just encourage you, cultivate the love of the people of God that God himself displays here. A love of the church, a love of Christians and caring for them, even perhaps when they're unlovely. Might it be that this church, if we're this portion of Christ's church, if we're active and intentional and consistent in holding this great reality in front of us that we will die and we will be divided into one of these camps, that we might see a totally different life now for people who live in preparation for heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess that We do like to pretend like we'll live forever and never have to face death. And we do confess that we live in a nation that likes to pretend like death will never happen. I suspect that's me personally why COVID has been so hard for a nation. We've been working for three decades to pretend like death doesn't exist. And then now having to have a national conversation about it and it's broken our brains. Lord, we do ask that you would give us that statement that Perkins has said, that in Christ, in his theology, we would live blessedly forever in this life and in the life to come. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.